Thank you, Mark. Good morning. I'm actually going to read something when we, as we were singing, I think it was the first song, and it says the, the earth is filled with his glory. Um, coming, it probably comes from a couple of places, but it takes me to Isaiah 6. And one of the things there, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I've actually heard that described or explained as um, the way the ocean is filled with water. So the earth is full of God's glory. And uh, that was a thought that captivated me. has nothing to do with the sermon this morning, but has everything to do with the God we worship and what we're doing here. Uh, Speaking of what we're doing here, my name is Zach and I'm the associate minister And we will be continuing our series uh, that we began last week. Joshua mentioned this earlier. We're going to continue our series through the book of Joshua. And this morning, we are going to be looking especially at Joshua 2. And uh, we're we're going to just jump right in. Uh, But before we do that, we need to stop and pray. So would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity and privilege that we have to gather here this morning together in one place to take communion, to give an offering, to give of our time, to give of ourselves to you and to one another. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, all of the things that go into making a church a church. Uh, Things like what we did on Friday night, things like what we do during the week and the phone calls and the emails and the letters. Thank you for this church in particular, and I just pray that this morning, as we do turn to your word, um, we would find that you are, or that rather the world, the earth, is filled with your glory, and that we would see you even just a little more, God, that we could never hope to fully grasp everything you are, but I pray that we would see you a little more this morning as we... uh, See who you've told us and shown us to be in your word. I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would guide us and work on us and that we would leave here this morning loving you more as a result through the songs we sing, the communion and the offering we take and give, um, through the way our kids are worshiping and learning and all these different things. God, be with us now uh, in this time. Open our hearts and open our open our minds and open our eyes. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Well, we are going to work our way through the story of Joshua 2 before we circle back around to draw out a couple of key ideas and their implications. So have a Bible handy. Uh, you, You might find a Bible. You should be able to find a Bible in one of the seats In front of you, or underneath one of the seats in front of you, although I realized after I got here this morning that it's maybe a little awkward compared to a year ago or a year and a half ago because that chair in front of you is kind of far away. So you might have to reach and lean a little bit to get to it. Um, But but I do encourage you to have a Bible, whether it's a physical book like this or it's a a tablet or phone, have a Bible in front of you. I'm not going to have a ton of script, hardly any scripture on the screen this morning. To encourage you to open a Bible, it's going to help you follow along if you can look at the story with me. Uh, So we're going to begin in Joshua 2, verses 1 and 2. They say this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from, um, well, you, I'm going to avoid being a viral video, and uh, 
some some translations are, that that literally means acacia grove. So when that comes up, I'm just going to say acacia grove so that I don't get famous in the wrong way. Um, so when Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from acacia grove as spies, saying, "Go view the land, especially Jericho," and they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So obviously there is a lot of backstory here that we just we can't get into this morning, like five books worth of backstory. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that backstory is valuable. It's even essential. But we can begin to understand this story here in Joshua 2 without it. What's important for us to know is that Joshua is the new leader of the Israelites. And the Israelites, God's chosen people, are on the edge of the promised land. They're camped several miles away from the Jordan River, which is not an especially wide river. It's simple enough to cross. But the Jordan River forms a very, very large portion of the promised land's eastern border. So if the Israelites are standing on the right hill, they can look out across the river into the promised land. So 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, living in tents, sojourners, pilgrims, with nowhere to call home. It's all about to come to an end. God has commanded Joshua to go. Get moving. It's time. The wait is over. Go and take what I am giving to you. Now across the river, uh, between 10 and 15 miles away from where they're camped in the Acacia Grove, Built into the hills at the edge of the valley is the closest city, Jericho. So Joshua sends in spies. He wants to know what the Israelite army is in for. He wants to be prepared. Now, some people would view this as a lack of faith on Joshua's part. Why did he need to send spies in if God had already promised to give him the land? And while I understand this line of thinking, and I, I think it has its place I don't think it's fair here because faith is not opposed to preparation. In fact, Joshua is simply doing what he has seen done before. In Numbers 13, the Lord commanded Moses to send spies into the promised land. And if you remember from last week or you know your Bibles, you know that Joshua was one of those original spies. So the spies that Joshua is now sending find their way in to Jericho, and they end up in the house of a prostitute, of a prostitute whose name is Rahab. All right, so that's, that's verse 1. Now we only have 23 more to go, and I think that was six minutes. So, uh, no, okay, we'll, we'll move much more quickly now that we've got a foundation underneath us. Uh, the second half of what I just read, verse 2, tells us that these two men were probably pretty lousy spies, <laughs> But it sets up the conflict for the rest of our story. Because before the night is over, the king of Jericho has already been informed that these spies are there. That's verse 2. So see how quick that that was? All right, we're going to keep moving. Verse 3 through 7. It says, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. 
But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So now the king's men know exactly where to look. Again, what were these spies doing? But Rahab denies knowing anything at all about these spies other than that they had, in fact, paid her a visit. Which, given her occupation, is more than plausible. So the men, the king's men, are persuaded by Rahab that she is telling the truth. And so they make haste towards the Jordan River and the Israelite camp. Because surely the spies are heading home. Surely the spies are heading back to tell everybody what they found. Now at this point in the story, we're left wondering what game Rahab is playing at. She's clearly lied to the king's men, and she's covered for the Israelite spies, but why? And let's not overlook the last words there that we just read in verse 7. The gate was shut. This is a walled city with one way in and one way out. The only way out of the city has been locked for the night. So the king's men might have left, they might be off the scent, but these two spies still need to get out of this city. All right, let's pick back up in verse 8 through 11. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. How's that for a confession? She might not know all of Israel's history. But she knows enough to know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, is mighty. She knows enough to know that it is not good. In fact, it is very, very bad, terrifying even, to be an enemy of the Lord. So what does Rahab do with that knowledge? What does she do with that fear? She pleads for mercy. We'll keep reading in verses 12 and 13. It says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So Rahab isn't only seeking mercy for herself, right, but for all of her family as well. And the spies oblige. Verse 14 says, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. All that's great. All that is great. But these spies, remember, still have a problem. They are still stuck in this city. The gate is shut and the city, or at least the the power players in the city, are on high alert looking for spies. So they have to get away. They have to get home. Verse 15 conveniently tells us this. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Wasn't that convenient? 
It would have been nice maybe to know that earlier in the story, but then the story wouldn't be nearly as suspenseful, would it? And the Bible isn't just telling us facts. It's telling us stories, true stories, but stories that are meant to be interesting to us. And no story is a good story that gives away its solution right at the beginning. So the two spies escape through the window, but not without a few words of advice from Rahab. In verse 16, she says, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. Basically, your camp is that way, and that's where the king's men went. And the hills are that way, and there is... There are lots of caves and nooks and crannies that you can hide in over here. So go there and hide. And by the end of three days, those spies that went that way will have come back this way. And then you can safely return home. Remember, Rahab has a very real interest in these men making it back to camp alive. They are the ones who will carry the message of mercy owed to her back to the Israelite army. And that message of mercy, this agreement, is what we read Next, in verses 17 through 21, it says, The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out out these doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. It's, it's, it's worth remembering here in Joshua 2 that none of these three had any idea what the fate of Jericho was actually going to be. None of these people had any idea. And if you don't either, you can look ahead to Joshua 6, or you can come back in a couple of weeks and hear Pastor Ben preach on that. But what they surely imagined was a siege. They surely imagined Israelite soldiers clashing in the streets, which is why it would have been so important for Rahab and her family to stay in their home. No Israelite soldier was going to enter into Rahab's house to do them harm. They would be fighting in the streets and they would be able to identify that house from the scarlet cord hanging from the window. So whatever spiritual purpose or symbol that we might like to attach to this cord, and I'm not saying it can't be done. This cord served a very, very practical purpose. It it marked this house out saying, you do not enter here. These people are safe. So let's go ahead and finish the story in verses 22 through 24. It says, They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So there you have it. We worked our way through the story. We've got the story now, but in order to read the Bible well, we have to do something with that story. Or or rather, we have to discern what that story is doing. Because God didn't give us stories 
for our entertainment, even though they are and can be entertaining stories. He gave us stories so that we might be transformed. He gave us stories to change us. And so why did God place this story in Scripture? What is it doing? What is the change, the transformation that it is working on? And you don't have to make this stuff up. It can sound mystic and mysterious and especially spiritual. Oh, what is God doing? We don't, you don't have to make this stuff up. You just have to read the Bible. Study it. Meditate on it. Put in the work. And, of course, pray that the Holy Spirit would guide you into the truth. But, but look at Joshua 1. This is why I said it would be helpful to have a Bible in front of you. Look at Joshua 1 and see how it ends. Only be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.18 is the third time that those words have come up in just the first chapter. And if, you're, and if you've been tracking with this story, again, I, I, we're picking up in the middle. If you've been tracking with this story and you're going through the book of Deuteronomy, you see these words pop up together several times there as well. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. But up to this point, we've hardly seen anybody exemplify those words. And as the story of Joshua opens, you might expect Joshua to be the example of strength and courage. You might even expect the spies to be the example of courage. But the fact that they don't have names should probably tip us off to look somewhere else. But you certainly would not expect a Canaanite prostitute woman to be the image of strength and courage that we encounter as the Israelites stand on the edge of the promised land. But here we find Rahab in Joshua 2 exemplifying the strength and the courage that we are supposed to see in Israel. Now to be fair, to be fair, Israel hasn't screwed up in this story yet. They haven't screwed up yet. They will. They do. Frankly, we all do. But this story, it's not in this story that Joshua and the spies are weak and cowardly. It's just obvious when you read this story that Rahab is in focus. And yes, yes, of course, God is the true center. Yes, 100%. God is the true center. He is the main character. Christ is our true focus. Yes, of course, 100%. But God doesn't come to us here in Joshua 2, pure and unfiltered. He comes to us in the story of Rahab. And we can only get to that point. We can only see what God is doing if we give Rahab her due. So Rahab is the lens through which we look to God. Now I've gotten ahead of myself, and we'll have to circle back around to that. But Rahab is in focus, and she's presented as an example of strength and courage. Now, unsurprisingly, ancient customs in that part of the world suggest that you could be killed for helping enemy spies. Again, that's not all that surprising. You don't have to go back in time to find that being the case. But when Rahab hides these spies and lies to the king's men, she is, in effect, forfeiting her life. If Rahab is found out, she will be killed. That's courage. So what do we do with Rahab's example? Well, we aren't necessarily limited or even encouraged to imitate what Rahab does with her courage. In fact, we we might not imitate it at all. This story here isn't to teach us that sometimes it's okay. It's even good to lie. You might be able to make that case, but that's not the point of this scripture. We are not arguing about when it's okay and the ethics of lying. See, we don't imitate 
so much what Rahab's courage does, but what her courage is. And part of the reason we don't imitate simply what her courage does, and and instead we imitate what her courage is, is because God is concerned not with appearances, but with hearts. And we know this from verses like 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, which says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in Hosea 6, 6, which says, For I, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, there are many reasons. There are many reasons that you might act courageously. There are many reasons you could be convinced to act courageously but courage for the sake of courage is not our aim so where does rahab's courage come from what is it and where does it come from well you just went through the story with me and you're hopefully holding a bible in front of you so where did it come from if you look at verses 8 through 11 particularly 11 rahab's choice to lie to the king and risk her life were based on what she believed about god easy enough we are in church after all, but don't turn your attention away from those verses just yet, because I want you to look for yourself and see this. What emotion does Rahab describe in those verses? It's not joy. It's not confidence. It's not even courage. It's fear. Rahab's courage is the result of immense, terrible fear, which is ironic, isn't it? Because we typically think of courage in relation to fear, right? There has to be fear in order for you to have courage. But we don't often think of fear as the roots from which courage grows. But when one fear is so strong, it it trumps the others, and it can cause us to act courageously, right? So Rahab's fear of God trumped, so overwhelmed all her other fears that she was able to act courageously now maybe you've been dealing with ants this summer if that's you i'm sorry ants are annoying and just when you think they're gone they come back but if a tornado was roaring through town you wouldn't be worried about the ants right it's not that the ants aren't a problem they are they're still a problem nothing about the ants change it's just your perspective has shifted significantly When a tornado is heading towards your house, you are not worried about the ants ants marching into your cabinets. In this story of Rahab, the king was an ant compared to the tornado that was swirling on the other side of the Jordan River heading towards Jericho. Rahab might have feared the king. It might have terrified her to lie to the king's men. The king really did pose a problem. But it's no good for Rahab to be in the king of Jericho's good graces if the God of heaven above and earth beneath is going to wipe you out in one week. And so Rahab's act of courage was rooted in her great fear. But that's not all. That's not all. Because at some point, that great fear had to change into something else. It had to turn into action. And it's either going to turn into a fight or it's going to turn into hope. You might find that an odd thing for me to say, that fear could turn into hope. But I think it's simple, really. (laughs) With such great fear, you can only fight back foolishly or hope. If there's an overwhelming force in front of you, you either throw in your lot with it and say, I got nothing if you don't take care of me. And that's hope. Or you fight back like a fool. 
And seeing as how fighting was proven foolish by the Egyptians and the Amorite kings, Rahab chose not to fight, but to hope. So what's the saying? If you you can't beat them, join them, right? And that might seem a little cynical, but Rahab understood that there was no sense in resisting the Lord. The only thing she could do was cast in her lot with the God of Israel and hope he would be kind to her. Now, some people say that hope is an act of courage, and and I understand that. Hope can be a very courageous thing, but I think, especially after looking at the story of Rahab, that courage is actually an act of hope. That hope is a confident expectation for a better future. And without that image in your head of that better future, who's going to risk anything, let alone their life? If you don't have hope that things could get better, that things will get better, why bother sticking out your neck? So Rahab's courage came from fear, yes. But it was fear that had matured into hope. Had she handed over the spot, she would have shown that she was most fearful of the king and that she trusted her future with him. And the king, in that instance, would have been her hope. But instead, Rahab's hope was in God. And that hope gave her the courage to face the threat posed by the king. So the obvious question for us this morning, Prairie View, is where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? And maybe you aren't sure. Maybe you need a Rahab check, right? A check to see where you're willing to act courageously. Because if you look and see where you are willing to act courageously, there is a good chance you are going to find where your hope lies. See, Rahab's hope was in God. But you and I have even better reasons to put our hope in him. Rahab had no way of knowing that God would be merciful. Rahab had no way of knowing that God would be gracious. She had no way of knowing that God would be accepting. After all, let's not forget, she was a Canaanite prostitute. All she knew was that she didn't want to be God's enemy. But we can know that God is merciful. We can know that God is gracious. We can know that God is accepting. And we can know all of these things by looking to the cross where Jesus died. Because Jesus Christ showed us his mercy by helping us in our misery and need. And saving us out of the wretchedness of our sins. And he showed us grace by giving us way, way more than we ever deserved. Paying the price for our sins by offering up his own life. And by the nature of his grace, he proves his acceptance that any sinner can be saved. Whether you're a Canaanite prostitute, a thief on the cross, or someone like Paul who is persecuting the church. Or someone like me, for that matter. We can be far more certain of our fate with God in Christ than Rahab ever was. Rahab had only heard stories of the things that God tore down. But we've heard stories about the things God has built up, even stories of the one who he has raised back to life. Is your hope in God? Is your hope in Christ? Do you understand that the greatest threat to you in all of the universe is the holy God? 
That in your sin, you are an enemy no different from the Canaanites, the Amorites, or the Egyptians that we read about in Scripture. Do you understand that the holiness of God demands that he acts in judgment and wrath towards evil and sin? And do you understand that this terrible fear can turn to hope in the finished work of Christ? Do you understand that the very same God who has every right to rid you and rid me and all of the chaos our sin creates to rid us from the universe, that very same God in love made a way for you and for me to escape that fate? Do you know this? My prayer is that you do, that we do as a church. I pray that you let Christ lift the heavy burden off of you and give you peace and courage and strength. And if you do know this, if you know the hope we have in Christ and the fear that matures into hope, I pray that it would grow and give you more strength and courage and peace and joy. I pray that you would look at the ants in your life. And recognize they're just ants. And that the whirlwind is going to blow them all away. And that whirlwind is on your side. At the end of Joshua 2, in verse 24, the spies tell Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is basically a paraphrase of what Rahab already said but Rahab wasn't the first one to say this God was and when we read it twice in this story here in Joshua 2 it's a confirmation of the faithfulness of God that God is doing what he said he would do back in Joshua 1 3 God says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. And in fact, that promise, the promise to Moses mentioned there, comes in Deuteronomy eleven twenty four and 25, which says, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread. As he promised you. And that promise goes back further even into Exodus. God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. And so the lesson we learn from Rahab and her example of strength finds sure footing in this. That our God is faithful. Who he was is who he always will be. We can put our hope in God, not just because he's great, not just because he's powerful, because those things can fail. But our God cannot and will not fail. So our strength and our courage, they flourish as we put our hope in God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to walk the line between fear and hope. And fear and love, God, and help us to rejoice in the thought that our greatest threat in all of the universe is also our loving Father who saves us and rescues us out of that threat. God, I pray that that fear would control other fears. 
and that that fear of you, that hope we have in you, sets limits on the other fears we might face. God, that as we look to the story of Rahab and we strive to have courage and strength in that way, that it's not about who we are, where we are in life, what we can offer, but it's about our hope and our eyes that are fixed on you. So open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you. That whether it's Sunday after Sunday or music on the radio or reading the Bible, reading books, whatever it might be, God, that as we hear about who you are, that we would hide it in our hearts, that it would grow and flourish into strength and courage that come from our great hope in you, that you are great and you are good, that you are powerful to save us and that you love us enough to do it. Father, I ask that we would be marked as a courageous people and not courage for the sake of courage, but courage in the shadow of the cross, Lord, that we would look to Jesus Christ as the fountain, as the source of that courage. Thank you for this morning and for your word that you give to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.